Part Two, Chapter Twenty One of the Daisy Chain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Daisy Chain by Charlotte Mary Young. Oh, where dwell ye, my ain sweet bairns? I'm woe and weary grown. Oh, lady, we live where woe never is, in a land to flesh unknown. Alan Cunningham It had been with a gentle sorrow that Etheldred had expected to go and lay in a resting place, the little niece, who had been kept from the evil of the world, in a manner of which she had little dreamt. Poor Flora, she must be ennobled, she thought, by having a child where hers is, when she is able to feel anything but the first grief and Ethel's heart yearned to be trying, at least, to comfort her, and to be with her father, who had loved his grandchild so fondly. It was not to be. Margaret had borne so many shocks with such calmness that Ethel had no especial fears for her. But there are some persons who have less fortitude for others than for themselves, and she was one of these. Ethel had been her own companion's sister, and the baby had been the sunbeam of her life, during the sad winter and spring. In the middle of the night, Ethel knocked at Richard's door. Margaret had been seized with faintness, from which they could not bring her back, and, even when Richard had summoned Dr. Spencer, it was long ere his remedies took effect. But, at last, she revived enough to thank them, and say she was glad that Papa was not there. Dr. Spencer sent them all to bed, and the rest of the night was quiet, but Margaret could not deny, in the morning, that she felt terribly shattered, and she was depressed in spirits to agree such as they had never seen in her before. Her whole heart was with Flora. She was unhappy at being at a distance from her, almost fretfully impatient for letters, and insisting vehemently on Ethel's going to London. Ethel had never felt so helpless and desolate as with Margaret thus changed and broken, and her father absent. "'My dear,' said Dr. Spencer, "'nothing can be better for both parties than that he should be away. "'If he were here, he ought to leave all attendance to me, "'and she would suffer from the sight of his distress.' "'I cannot think what he will do or feel,' sighed Ethel. "'Leave it to me. I will write to him, and we shall see her better before post-time.' "'You will tell him exactly how it was, or I shall,' said Ethel abruptly, "'not to say fiercely.' "'Oh!' "'You don't trust me?' said Dr. Spencer, smiling, so that she was ashamed of her speech. "'You shall speak for yourself, and I for myself, and I shall say that nothing would so much hurt her as to have others sacrificed to her.' "'That is true,' said Ethel. "'But she misses Papa.' "'Of course she does, but depend on it. She would not have him leave your sister, and she is under less restraint without him.' "'I never saw her like this.' The drop has made it overflow. She has repressed more than was good for her, and now that her guard is broken down, she gives way under the whole weight. Poor Margaret! I am pertinacious, but, if she is not better by post-time, Papa will not bear to be away. I'll tell you what I think of her by that time. Send up your brother Richard, if you wish to do her good. Richard would be a much better person to write than yourself. I perceive that he is the reasonable member of the family. Did not you know that before? All I knew of him, till last night, 
was that no one could, by any possibility, call him Dick. Dr. Spencer was glad to have dismissed Ethel smiling, and she was the better able to bear with poor Margaret's condition of petulance. She had never before experienced the effects of bodily ailments on the temper, and she was slow to understand the change in one usually so patient and submissive. She was, by turns, displeased with her sister and with her own abruptness. But, though she knew it not, her bluntness had a bracing effect. She thought she had been cross in declaring it was nonsense to harp on her going to London, but it made Margaret feel that she had been unreasonable and keep silence. Richard managed her much better, being gentle and firm, and less ready to speak than Ethel, and he succeeded in composing her into a sleep, which restored her balance, and so relieved Ethel that she not only allowed Dr. Spencer to say what he pleased, but herself made light of the whole attack, little knowing how perilous was any shock to that delicate frame. Margaret's whole purpose was to wind herself up for the first interview with Flora, and though she had returned to her usual state, she would not go downstairs on the evening the party were expected, believing it would be more grateful to her sister's feelings to meet her without witnesses. The travellers arrived, and Dr. May hurried up to her. She barely replied to his caresses and inquiries in her eagerness to hear of Flora, and to convince him that he must not forbid the meeting, nor had he any mind to do so. Surely, said he, when he had seen the spiritualized look of her glistening blue eyes, the flush on her transparent cheeks, and her hands clasped over her breast. Surely poor Flora must feel as though an angel were waiting to comfort her. Flora came, but there was sore disappointment. Fond and tender she was as ever, but neither by word or gesture would she admit the most remote allusion to her grief. She withdrew her hand when Margaret's pressure became expressive. She avoided her eye and spoke incessantly of different subjects. All the time her voice was low and hollow. Her face had a settled expression of wretchedness, and her glances wandered drearily and restlessly anywhere but to Margaret's face. But her steadiness of manner was beyond her sister's power to break, and her visit was shortened on account of her husband. Poor George had quite given way at the sight of Gertrude, whom his little girl had been thought to resemble, and, though Dr. May had soothed him almost like a child, no one put any trust in his self-control, and all sat round, fearing each word or look, till Flora came downstairs and they departed. Richard and Ethel each offered to go with them. They could not bear to think of their spending that first evening in their childless home, but Flora gently, but decidedly, refused, and Dr. May said that, much as he wished to be with them, he believed that Flora preferred having no one but Maida. I hope I have done Margaret no harm, were Flora's last words to him, and they seemed to explain her guarded manner, but he found Margaret weeping as she had never wept for herself, and palpitation and faintness were the consequence. Ethel looked on at Flora as a sad and perplexing mystery during the weeks that ensued. There were few opportunities of being alone together, and Flora shrank from such as they were. Nay, she checked all expression of solicitude, and made her very kisses rapid and formal. The sorrow that had fallen on the Grange seemed to have changed none of the usual habits there. Visiting, riding, driving, dinners, and music went on with little check. Flora was sure to be found the animated, attentive lady of the house, or else sharing her husband's pursuits, helping him with his business, or assisting him in seeking pleasure, 
spending whole afternoons at the coachmakers over a carriage that they were building, and, it was reported, playing a cart in the evening. Had grief come to be forgotten and cast aside without effecting any mission? Yet Ethel could not believe that the presence of the awful messenger was unfelt when she heard poor George's heavy sigh, or when she looked at Flora's countenance, and heard the peculiar low, subdued tone of her voice, which, when her words were most cheerful, always seemed to Ethel the resigned accent of despair. Ethel could not talk her over with Margaret, for all seemed to make it a point that Margaret should believe the best. Dr. May turned from the subject with a sort of shuddering grief, and said, "'Don't talk of her, poor child. Only pray for her.' Ethel, though shocked by the unwanted manner of his answer, was somewhat consoled by perceiving that a double measure of tenderness had sprung up between her father and his poor daughter. If Flora had seemed, in her girlhood, to rate him almost cheaply, this was at an end now. She met him as if his embrace were peace, the gloom was lightened, the attention less strained when he was beside her, and she could not part with him without pressing for a speedy meeting. Yet she treated him with the same reserve, since that one ghastly revelation of the secrets of her heart, the veil had been closely drawn, and he could not guess whether it had been a horrible thought or were still an abiding impression. Ethel could gather no more than that her father was very unhappy about Flora, and that Richard understood why, for Richard had told her that he had written to Flora to try to persuade her to cease from this reserve, but that he had no reply. Norman was not at home. He had undertaken the tutorship of two schoolboys for the holidays, and his father owned, with a sigh, that he was doing wisely. As to Maida, she was Ethel's chief consolation. By the redoubled assurances directed to Ethel's unexpressed dread, lest Flora should be rejecting a chastening hand. Maida had the most absolute certainty that Flora's apparent cheerfulness was all for George's sake, and that it was a most painful exertion. If Ethel could only see how she let herself sink together, as it were, and her whole countenance relaxed, as soon as he was out of sight, Maida said, she could not doubt what misery these efforts were to her. "'Why does she go on with them?' said Ethel." George, said Maida, what will become of him without her? If he misses her for ten minutes, he roams about lost, and he cannot enjoy anything without her. I cannot think how he can help seeing what hard work it is, and how he can be contented with those dreadful sham smiles. But as long as she can give him pleasure, poor Flora will toil for him. It is very selfish, Ethel caught herself saying. No, no, it is not, cried Maida. It is not that he will not see, but that he cannot see. Good honest fellow, he really thinks it does her good and pleases her. I was so sorry one evening when I tried to take her place at that perpetual ecarte, and told him it teased her. He went so wistfully to her, and asked whether it did, and she exerted herself into such painful enjoyment to persuade him to the contrary. And afterwards she said to me, Let me alone, dearest. It is the only thing left me. There is something in being husband and wife that one cannot understand, slowly said Ethel, so much in her quaint way that Meta laughed. Had it not been for Norman's absence, Ethel would, in the warm sympathy and accustomed manner of Meta Rivers, have forgotten all about the hopes and fears that, in brighter days, had centered on that small personage, until one day, as she came home from Coxmoor, 
she found Sir Henry Walkingham's card on the drawing-room table. "'I should like to bite you. "'Coming here, are you?' was her amiable reflection. Meta, in her writing habit, peeped out of Margaret's room. "'Oh, Ethel, there you are. "'It is such a boon that you did not come home sooner, "'or we should have had to ride home with him. "'I heard him asking for the Miss Mays, "'and now I am in hopes that he will go home "'without falling in with Flora and George.' I did not know he was in these parts. He came to Drydale last week, but the place is forlorn, and George gave him a general invitation to the Grange. Do you like him? said Ethel, while Margaret looked on, amazed at her audacity. I like him very much in London, said Meta. He is pleasant enough to talk to, but somehow he is not congruous here, if you understand me. And I think his coming oppresses Flora, she turned quite pale when he was announced, and her voice was lower than ever when she spoke to him. "'Does he come often?' said Ethel. "'I don't think he has anything else to do,' returned Mina, "'for our house cannot be as pleasant as it was. "'But he is very kind to George, and for that we must be grateful. "'One thing I am afraid of, that he will persuade us off to the yachting after all.' "'Oh!' was the general exclamation. "'Yes,' said Maida. George seemed to like the plan, and I very much fear that he is taking a dislike to the dear old Grange. I heard him say, anything to get away. Poor George, I know he is restless, said Margaret. At least, said Ethel, you can't go till after your birthday, Miss Eris. No, Uncle Cosham is coming, said Meta. Margaret, you must have your stone laid before we go. Dr. Spencer promises it before Hector's holidays are over, said Margaret, blushing as she always did, with pleasure, when they talked of the church. Hector Earnscliff had revived Margaret wonderfully. She was seldom downstairs before the evening, and Ethel thought his habit of making her apartment his sitting-room must be as inconvenient to her as it was to herself, but Hector could not be de trop for Margaret. She exerted herself to fulfill for him all the little sisterly offices that, with her brothers, had been transferred to Ethel and Mary. She threw herself into all his schemes, tried to make him endure Captain Gordon, and she even read his favorite book of wild sports, though her feelings were constantly lacerated by the miseries of the slaughtered animals. Her couch was to him as a home, and he had awakened her bright, soft liveliness which had been only dim for a time. The church was her other great interest, and Dr. Spencer humored her by showing her all his drawings, consulting her on every ornament, and making many a perspective elevation, merely that she might see the effect. Richard and Tom made it their recreation to construct a model of the church as a present for her, and Tom developed a genius for carving, which proved a beneficial interest to keep him from surliness. He had voluntarily propounded his intended profession to his father, who had been so much pleased by his choice that he could not but be gratified. Though now and then ambitious fancies, and disconsent with Stoneborough, combined to bring on his ordinary moody fits, the more, because his habitual reserve prevented anyone from knowing what was working in his mind. Finally, the Rivers party announced their intention of going to the Isle of Wight as soon as Maida had come of age, and the Council of Coxmoor, meeting at tea at Dr. May's house, decided that the foundation stone of the church should be laid on the day after her birthday, when there would be a gathering of the whole family, as Margaret wished. Dr. Spencer had worked incredibly hard to bring it forward, 
and Margaret's sweet smiles and liquid eyes expressed how personally thankful she felt. "'What a blessing this church has been to that poor girl,' said Dr. Spencer, as he left the house with Mr. Wilmot. "'How it beguiles her out of her grief! I am glad she has the pleasure of a foundation. I doubt if she will see the consecration.' "'Indeed,' said Mr. Wilmot, shocked. "'Was that attack so serious?' That recumbent position and want of exercise were certain to produce organic disease, and suspense and sorrow have hastened it. The death of Mrs. Rivers's poor child was the blow that called it into activity, and, if it lasts more than a year, I shall be surprised. For such as she is, one cannot presume to wish, but her father. Is he aware of this? He knows there is extensive damage. I think he does not open his eyes to the result, but he will bear it. Never was there a man to whom it came so naturally to live like the fowls of the air, or the lilies of the field, as it does to dear Dick May, said Dr. Spencer, his voice faltering. There is a strength of faith and love in him that carries him through all, said Mr. Wilmot. His childlike nature seems to have the trustfulness that is, in itself, consolation. You said how Coxmore had been blessed to Margaret, I think it is the same with them all, not only Ethel and Richard, who have been immediately concerned, but that one object has been a center and aim to elevate the whole family and give force and unity to their efforts. Even the good doctor, much as I always looked up to him, much good as he did me in my young days, I must confess that he was sometimes very provoking. If you had tried to be his keeper at Cambridge, you might say so, rejoined Dr. Spencer. He is so much less impetuous, more consistent, less desultory. I dare say you understand me, said Mr. Wilmot. His good qualities do not entangle one another as they used to do. Exactly so. He was far more than I looked for when I came home, though I might have guessed that such a disposition, backed by such principles and such, could not but shake off all the dross. One thing was, said Mr. Wilmot, smiling, that a man must take himself in hand at some time in his life, and Dr. May only began to think himself responsible for himself when he lost his wife, who was wise for both. She was an admirable person, but not easy to know well. I think you knew her at... I say, interrupted Dr. Spencer, it strikes me that we could not do better than get up our SPG demonstration on the day of the stone... Hitherto the Stoneborough subscribers to the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel had been few and far between, but, under the new dynasty, there was a talk of forming an association and having a meeting to bring the subject forward. Dr. Spencer's proposal, however, took the vicar by surprise. "'Never could there be a better time,' he argued. "'You have naturally a gathering of clergy. People ought to be liberal on such an occasion, and—' As Coxmore is provided for, why not give the benefit to the missions in their crying need? True, but there is no time to send for anyone to make a speech. Husband, your resources. What could you have better than young Harry and his islanders? Harry would never make a speech. Let him cram Norman. Young Leg tells me Norman made a great sensation at the Union at Oxford, and if his heart is in the work, he must not shrink from the face of his townsman. No doubt he had rather they were savages, said the vicar, and yourself, you will tell them of the Indian missions. 
"'With all my heart,' said Dr. Spencer. "'When my Brahmin he got son, the deacon I told you of, "'comes to pay me his promised visit, what doings we shall have. "'Seriously, I have just had letters from him and from others "'that speak of such need, "'that I could feel every moment wasted that is not spent on their behalf.' "'Mr. Wilmot was drawn into Dr. Spencer's house.' and heard the letters till his heart burned within him the meeting was at once decided upon though ethel could not see why people could not give without speechifying and her two younger brothers declared it was humbug tom saying he wished all blackmores were out of creation and harry that he could not stand palaver about his friend david dr may threatened him with being displayed on the platform as a living instance of the effects of missions at which he took alarm, and so seriously declared that he should join the Bucephalus at once, that they pacified him by promising that he should do as he pleased. The archdeacon promised a sermon, and the active Dr. Spencer worked the nine muses and all the rest of the town and neighborhood into a state of great enthusiasm and expectation. He went to the Grange, as he said, to collect his artillery, primed Flora that she might prime the M.P., made the willing maid a promise to entrap the uncle, who was noted for philanthropical speeches, and himself captured Sir Henry Walkingham, who looked somewhat rueful at what he found incumbent on him as a country gentleman, though there might be some compensation in the eagerness of Miss Rivers. Norman had hardly set foot in Stoneborough before he was told what was in store for him, and, to the general surprise, submitted as if it were a very simple matter. As Dr. Spencer told him, it was only a foretaste of the penalty which every missionary has to pay for coming to England. Norma was altogether looking much better than when he had been last at home, and his spirits were more even. He had turned his whole soul to the career he had chosen, cast his disappointment behind him, or, more truly, made it his offering, and gathered strength and calmness with which to set out on tasks of working for others, with thoughts too much absorbed on them, to give way to the propensity of making himself the primary object of study and contemplation. The praise of God and love of man were the best cures for tendencies like his, and he had found it out. His calm, though grave cheerfulness, came as a refreshment to those who had been uneasy about him, and mournfully watching poor Flora. Yes, said Dr. Spencer, you have taken the best course for your own happiness. Norman colored, as if he understood more than met the ear. Mary and Blanche were very busy preparing presents for Meadow Rivers, and everyone was anxious to soften to her the thought of this first birthday without her father. Each of the family contributed some pretty little trifle, choice in workmanship or kind in device, and each was sealed and marked with the initials of the giver, and packed up by Mary, to be committed to Flora's charge. Blanche had, however, much trouble in extracting a gift from Norman, and he only yielded at last, on finding that all his brothers had sent something, so that his omission would be marked. Then he dived into the recesses of his desk, and himself sealed up a little parcel, of which he would not allow his sisters to inspect the contents. Ethel had a shrewd guess. She remembered his having, in the flush of joy at Margaret's engagement, rather prematurely caused a seal to be cut with a daisy, and Pearl of the Meadow, as the motto, and his having said that he should keep it as a wedding present. She could understand that he was willing to part with it without remark. Flora met Maida in her sitting-room on the morning of the day, 
which rose somewhat sadly upon the young girl, as she thought of past affection and new responsibilities. If the fondness of a sister could have compensated for what she had lost, Maida received it in no scanty measure from Flora, who begged to call George, because he would be pleased to see the display of gifts. His own was the only costly one. Almost all the rest were homemade treasures of the greater price, because the skill and fondness of the maker were evident in their construction, and Maida took home the kindness as it was meant, and felt the affection that would not let her feel herself lonely. She only wished to go and thank them all at once. "'Do then,' said Flora. "'If Lord Cosham will spare you, and your business should be over in time, you could drive in and try to bring Papa home with you.' "'Oh, thank you, Flora. That is a kind treat, in case the morning should be very awful.' Margaret Agatha Rivers signed her documents, listened to explanations, and was complimented by her uncle on not thinking it necessary to be senseless on money matters, like her cousin, Agatha Longdale. Still, she looked a little oppressed as she locked up the tokens of her wealth, and the sunshine of her face did not beam out again till she arrived at Stoneboro and was dispensing her pretty thanks to the few she found at home. Ethel out and Norman? His seal is only too pretty. They are all helping Dr. Spencer at Coxmoor. What a pity! But it is so very kind of him to treat me as a daisy. In some ways I like his present for that the best of all, said Maida. I will tell him so, said Mary. Yes, no, said Maida, I am not pretending to be anything half so nice. Mary and Blanche fell upon her for calling herself anything but the nicest flower in the world, and she contended that she was nothing better than a parrot tulip, stuck up in a parterre, and just as the discussion was becoming a game at romps, Dr. May came in, and the children shouted to him to say whether his hummingbird were a daisy or a tulip. "'That is as she comports herself,' he said playfully. "'Which means that you don't think her quite done for,' said Maida. "'Not quite,' said the doctor, with a droll intonation. "'But I have not seen what this morning may have done to her.' "'Come and see, then,' said Maida. "'Flora told me to bring you home, and it is my birthday, you know. "'Never mind waiting to tell Ethel. "'Margaret will let her know that I'll keep you out of mischief.' "'As usual,' Dr. May could not withstand her, and she carried him off in triumph in her pony carriage. "'Then you don't give me up yet?' was the first thing she said, as they were off the stones. "'What have you been doing to make me?' said he. "'Doing or not doing, one or the other,' she said. "'But indeed, I wanted to have you to myself. I am in a great puzzle.' "'Sir Henry?' "'I hope she won't consult me,' thought Dr. May, as he answered. "'Well, my dear,' I fear it is a lasting puzzle, she said. What shall I do with all this money? Keep it in the bank or buy railway shares, said Dr. May, looking arch. Thank you. That's a question for my cousins in the city. I want you to answer me as no one else can do. I want to know what is my duty now that I have my means in my own hands. There is need enough around. I do not mean only giving a little here and there, but I want you to hear a few of my thoughts. Flora and George are kindness itself, but, you see, I have no duties. They are obliged to live a gay sort of life. It is their position, but I cannot make out whether it is mine. I don't see that I am like those girls who have to go out as a matter of obedience. Dr. May considered, but could only say, You are very young. 
too young to be independent sighed maida i must grow old enough to be trusted alone and in the meantime probably an answer will be found said the doctor you and your means will find their their vocation marriage said maida calmly speaking the word that he had avoided i think not why he began i do not think good men like heiresses he became strongly interested in a cornfield and she resumed perhaps i should only do harm it may be my duty to wait all i wish to know is whether it is i see you are not like girls who know their duty and are restless because it is not the duty they like oh i like everything it is my liking it so much that makes me afraid even going to ride don't i like the sailing and seeing harry too i don't feel as if that were waste because i can sometimes spare poor flora a little we could not let her go alone you need never fear to be without a mission of comfort said dr may your spirit full of glee was given you for something your presence is far more to my poor flora than you or she guess i never meant to leave her now said maida earnestly i only wish to be clear whether i ought to seek for my work it will seek you when the time comes and meantime i must do what comes to hand and take it as humiliation that it is not in the more obviously blessed tasks a call might come as cocksmoor did to ethel but oh my money ought it to be laid up for myself for your call when it comes said dr may smiling then gravely there are but too many calls for the interest the principal is your trust till the time comes maida smiled and was pleased to think that her first fruits would be offered to-morrow end of part two chapter twenty one recording by nancy cochran gergen gilbert arizona